welcome to the Mind Over MRKH podcast. I'm Ella May, the founder and director of Vava Womb and Mind Over MRKH, and I'll be talking all things MRKH, aka Mayer Rokitansky Kuster Hauser Syndrome, aka Malariogenesis. I am one of the one in 5,000 female babies born worldwide without or an underdeveloped womb, cervix and vaginal canal. On this podcast, I'll be talking all things MRKH from pleasure to dilating, mental and sexual health, fertility and navigating your MRKH journey. I'll be joined by advocates and experts along the way. This podcast aims to support the production and printing of the MRKH magazine project, where we aim to produce, print and post a magazine to our global MRKH community. If you want to join me on this podcast or ask me a question, pop me an email over at mindovermrkh at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at mindovermrkh. You are not alone. You are worthy and you are loved. I'm so excited to have Charlie Bishop next on the MRKH podcast. Charlie took over as director of charity MRKH Connect in 2019, building on their strong foundation. She and the team work on numerous activities and initiatives to help connect, raise awareness and work to improve care for all. Day to day, she works as a project manager, analysing images of the earth, so cool, taken from space, transferring many of those skills to her work with Connect. Living in North Norway, she loves running and hiking. MRKH Connect has a mission to connect those with MRKH together and to ensure that there's a safe space for all MRKHs to chat and share together, whilst also raising awareness publicly. No one with MRKH should ever feel alone. Hello, Charlie, and welcome to the podcast. Um, how are you? <laughs> I'm very well, thank you, Ella May. Thank you so much for having me here. Good. I hate the beginning because just for our listeners, me and Charlie have just spoken, so I have to do this. <laughs> Hello, how are you? <laughs> At the beginning, <laughs> and it sounds a bit unnatural my end, but anyway. Um, are you ready for Christmas? How's Norway? Yes, I am. Yes, I came back here a couple of weeks ago, so um, yeah, getting ready for Christmas. Very snowy, minus 10 degrees today with snow on the ground so it's uh, dark and chilly and very much a winter wonderland up here in uh, in the north of Norway so oh. yes very excited sounds beautiful yeah I just said that I'd love to spend Christmas somewhere that just looks like what Christmas should look like um, definitely get back <laughs> I guess if you don't mind just quickly I'm obviously going to introduce you before the podcast but if you don't mind introducing yourself properly just so our listeners know who you are but I'm sure loads of our listeners will know who you are already yes of course no problem hello everyone um so great to be here I'm Charlie uh I'm the director of MRKH Connect uh, which is a UK charity with a mission to connect those with MRKH together and raise and improve awareness of MRKH. And I've been advocating now for probably nearly 10 years, I would guess, at least publicly. Um, so, yeah, really looking forward to sharing my experiences with you today. I'm so looking forward to you being here. Um, <laughs> so me and Charlie have actually met, I think, twice now in the flesh, haven't we? Yes, we have. Yes. So last, I think it was the 
after the first lockdown we went to a picnic in Richmond and then we met recently at a meal so it's actually so nice to be speaking to someone I've met and hugged and like spoken yeah. to in real life. Um, after lots of conversations online it feels really really nice to have actually had a personal connection as well with you. <laughs> yeah I know and also online you don't know how like tall someone is or you don't know what to expect like when you hug them and it just feels it felt yeah it was so lovely though to have met you in real life and after so many like Zoom chats and chatting over Instagram messages and yeah um so anyway we'll kick off and get into the nitty gritty I guess of your journey uh, this isn't going to be all of Charlie's story this is going to be just a snippet of some of the amazing things that you've done over your lifetime um there's going to be so much to squeeze in with all of our stories and seeing as we live them daily and I guess we're all learning and growing so today will just be a little bit of the powerhouse of a woman that you are um, <laughs> um so to start Charlie could you just tell us a bit about your diagnosis story and I know that's a huge question um so I guess just a bit about teenage Charlie and and how it was being diagnosed as a young person with MRKH yes um I would say great question but I guess that's the natural question that that we always ask <laughs> um but yes I was diagnosed at 17 which is actually 20 years ago yeah, 20 years ago, so I'm now 37. Uh, it doesn't really feel like it was 20 years ago, if I'm quite honest with you. It's uh, really gone. I, I, it probably didn't go very fast at the time, but certainly over, I can look back on it now and think, oh my goodness, where has that time gone? Um, but yes, I, I remember going to, to the doctors when I was 16 and finding like another excuse to go to the doctors because my mum said oh, I think you should I think you should like speak to the doctor about mm. the fact that you haven't started your period and so I think I went about uh, there was a problem with my foot and then I just like <laughs> slipped that into the the end of the conversation and just said oh and, oh, and, oh, and also my mum said I should ask I think I even said that my mum said I should ask um and she said okay well you know it's nothing really to worry about at this stage um and and I think I'd mentioned that that my mum my mum started late so like, I'm not too worried about it the GP said um give it a year and come back and then we'll have a, a look into it if if needed mm. so a, another year went by and my mum said I think, I think you need to go back to the doctors again and and so again I found some some other excuse to, <laughs> to go back to the doctors and then slipped that in kind of at the end of the conversation and she was like okay well I think this probably needs some more investigation. Um, so she uh, referred me to a, a gynecologist um, and, and they did quite a lot of different tests. So everything from testing blood, so hormone levels in blood to they put me on the pill to see if that would kind of kickstart mm. anything. If it, was, if it was a hormonal thing, maybe that would help yeah. kind of regulate. Um, and they did an ultrasound, but they didn't really show them very much. Um, and so they, they weren't, it was all a bit inconclusive. So at the time, at least, uh, the, the kind of preferred method in the UK was a laparoscopy where they, they stick mm. a little camera through your belly button and one up through your groin and they have a little look around. So that was like a, a day, uh, a day stay in a, in a hospital where they, do some investigations and it's a general anesthetic and they they pump your stomach full of um, gas basically so you come out of oh, it feeling nice. really bloated and yeah. pain and it's, it's yeah really quite um 
yeah it, it wasn't a very pleasant experience for sure mm. um and I remember waiting ages and ages for the doctor to to come back to the room and give us an update and and you know my mum was like Some, something must be seriously wrong like that you know why are they taking so long mm. um and my mum said that she knew instantly something wasn't quite right when both the doctor and uh, a nurse came in together like that just seemed like a little bit like why didn't the doctor just come in by by himself mm. or um and and that's when they they explained that it was that they thought it was this condition they'd seen a similar case previously um and explained that you know I was born without a, a uterus and that mm. um it would need some further investigation so and my mum's in tears and I'm just like I just want to go <laughs> I just want to go home mm. um at the time it was really like I, I didn't really know how to how to process that but I, I was I think I was quite lucky because I come from the, the southeast of, of England, um, relatively close to London, and my doctor actually knew that there was a specialist in London. So I was mm. quite, quite quickly referred um, to is the centre at, at Queen Charlotte's Hospital. Um, it's an interesting and, word, that lucky, isn't it, when we speak yeah, about diagnosis, because <laughs> you probably know that now you realise actually how so many stories you've got a, a lucky experience with knowing that you've, you're with someone but back then you just don't feel lucky do you, you just think no. that this is the worst thing in the world but yeah no it's because it's, I've all. said it before yeah. I've said yeah it's it's so funny like and you're you're, you're really right and I didn't realise this whole like concept of feeling kind of lucky mm. and, and not mm. having a, really a very long wait to to get to um, a specialist who knew more about it and could explain it to us in like normal people terms I guess yeah, for yeah. want of a better phrase um and it wasn't until I met some some people um later in the support groups that I realized that some people have waited years for, mm. for that kind of closure or um information and I'd had that within uh probably three to six months of diagnosis mm. just be and that was more because of waiting times because they already knew where I should be referred to and then it was waiting for an appointment to actually discuss that with with the specialist so um yeah it was a it was a really strange uh, a strange time where you don't really there was there wasn't really social media at that time I had no kind of reference point there was no uh, opportunity to to google something um and find out a little bit more I mean google did probably just about exist then but there I mean it's nothing it's wasn't as big as it comparable is to today so it's uh there was nothing like uh the information that is available now and uh so it was very much relying on what the specialist said and and mm. where we were referred to so it was you, you felt a little bit more in the dark because you didn't have um it didn't have access uh, to things so so openly as you do nowadays I think mm. which was really I don't know if that I mean it was challenging but I think also um it gave me a little bit more time to maybe sit with MRKH in a different way than maybe is possible now it's it's kind of hard to compare it of course because it's a very different situation but so true um, it's uh there's now so much information I, I wonder if that can that must be so overwhelming so I, mm. whereas I didn't have that so but that was also difficult for different reasons so it's it's really <laughs> it's Definitely. really yeah really difficult to, and I know like all all diagnosis stories are unique but everyone it, it doesn't lessen the blow no matter no. how easy we think our diagnosis story was the the feet yeah so how did you feel as, as someone just being diagnosed as MRKH what was that those days or those that first month like yeah, I 
I, I didn't really know what was going on to be quite mm. honest I felt in a bit of a daze for the first um certainly for the first few months I, I I didn't really know how to process it to be quite honest I I was I remember telling a, a few people I told my my boyfriend at the time and um a couple of other friends who were close to me but I I didn't really know what I was explaining I mean I, I knew what they had explained to me in the hospital and I could you know re regurgitate that but I had no real information as to, to why or what this really meant and um, and I think I, I was trying to get my head around the fact that this was, you know, changing, changing how I thought things will be in the future. And, mm. and actually, I didn't know how to process that at the age of 17. And you know, I've got you know, school looming and you know, university looming and all these other things going on and, and then trying to deal with something so massive as this at the same time. I don't think I appreciated until much later the 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 the, men, the the, the mental health toll that that had on on me um, mm. and it seems silly to think back because it obviously had one but I think back then I just kind of felt oh it's just I'm just being silly it's just uh, it's just fine and I think that's part of how I guess we we reacted to those types of um, scenarios um, you know back in that kind of time frame where we didn't really talk about mental health in the, in the way mm. that we do nowadays but I, I was I was really struggling I'd, I'd you know brush it under the carpet not want to talk about it and then talk about it a little bit on my terms um but we didn't really talk about it at home um mm. it was not there was no kind of specific decision where my where my family said okay this is a topic we just don't talk about it was just became a, a natural topic that we we didn't address yeah. Um, yeah and I think it was probably more because my parents also didn't want to upset me and and they knew it was obviously it was difficult for them as well and and mm. I think I can look back on that now and they can look back on it now and think yeah it was a lot harder for for us than than we all shared openly mm. um but there also wasn't that support there to help all of us uh, I mm. guess at, at that time so it was um it was difficult and I, I would say for the first couple of years in particular and then kind of going going to uni and just trying to kind of brush it away and um you know forget about it you know get drunk go have fun be you know be a bit stupid at yeah, times um, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh it seemed like a coping mechanism that was uh, mm. very sustainable at the time which of course it, it absolutely is not um but it but it's something you know it's a, it's a reaction to a to a situation and i i think it's it was me trying to make sense of it in a way that well there wasn't a way I could make sense of it but that that felt like comfort at the time um and and I didn't know what other sources of support um I might have until a little bit later where I started mm. to um to, to speak to other people so it was um yeah yeah difficult difficult time yeah. in those, those kind of early years I would say they were the, the darkest but the hardest to explain because I've kind of like but I glazed think. over them a little bit as time has gone on I think so and that really does happen it is blocking out trauma almost um, yes, you mentioned around like the stigma of talking to your family and I just wondered if you think that it was way more stigmatized to talk openly back when you were diagnosed to maybe that it is now or do you think that that stays because it is so personal and it is about our wombs and vaginas and some some of this stuff you're kind of forced into speaking to family about way before you want to anyway <laughs> yeah oh my goodness mm. yes. 
but but no, I I do think that it's it's very different now than it was then, mm. and I think we are um, socially more accepting of more open conversations on sensitive topics than we were yeah. twenty years ago. Uh, I think there are many people that wanted to be more open about uh, such topics, but it's just not uh, yeah I, I don't think society uh, was accepting of those mm. as accepting of those discussions so in in that kind of way like using you know I never said the word vagina I don't think until I was like openly at least mm. until I was yeah, in same. my mid late 20s because it yeah. just felt, it, it always felt like an embarrassing word to say or it's a mm. dirty word to say um yeah. and so to, to try and explain to someone that you don't have a you don't have a uterus and that also you have a, a, short, a shortened vagina mm. and what that means and then your parents are list oh no yeah it, it was just it's a lot it's a lot not, <laughs> yeah it, it was just too much and uh yeah. so I, I I but I I, I suspect um and it'll be interesting to hear other people's experiences through uh these discussions as well um I, I suspect Definitely. it was probably a very similar feeling for people diagnosed at that time or perhaps earlier who had similar challenges kind of trying to be open and sharing that kind of thing because even telling my friends it was I was really like I was gonna ask that <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I yeah I felt exactly the same with with all of the um you'd want to talk about MRKH and I found it easier to personally say things about the word womb just because it was more of a yes. used word but using the word vagina and you, you just people get confused about what the vulva is what the vagina is and you want to kind of protect what you do have when you're trying to describe what you don't have so I definitely um, feel that on to sort of speaking to people so do you remember any sort of disclosure stories around telling friends did you find that really hard and how did you cope through um, opening up was or is that like you said for me, it was having a glass of wine and then not remembering the next day what I told people. Um, so how was that for you? How are your sort of your friendship groups and support in that way? Yeah, it's uh, kind of a mix and not too dissimilar to, to your experience, <laughs> but um, it was, uh, I, I think with with some of my close friends, I'd, I'd kind of tell them, I'd, I'd almost tell them just as like a side note, like we'd be, mm. yeah, and I would, still at school obviously at, at 17 and um, I'd tell them on on the way to a class and it was almost like that was an escape because I could tell them and then no one class <laughs> they can't well they can't ask me any more questions about it but and it was weird because I, I wanted them to know because um you know they knew I'd been out at, uh, in in the hospital during the holidays and um you know and, and I I love my friends and I wanted to share but I didn't really know how to share or really what I wanted from that disclosure other than it felt like some form of relief to share something with them so that they knew mm. they knew something about me um something different was about me um so and and that was very positive I I, I have to admit I felt very lucky having some really supportive friends who they didn't ask too many questions um but then they could tell that if if I started a conversation then I was quite happy to answer questions about it um and, and I do remember giving one of my friends uh I probably have it still somewhere like one of these awful NHS like 1990s leaflets <laughs> about uh MRK, this is me <laughs> which is literally the worst thing because it's so like medical speak overload um mm. and and I just, I think I told one of my friends at a party uh, in my house, uh, so I didn't just carry this leaflet around with me, but, um, and I just gave her the leaflet. And I said, this, if you'd like to read more, and she was like, 
and she sat and read it like to to be to be fair to her and she was genuinely like really in most of my friends they just felt um and maybe you had the same like they just felt really bad they felt Mm. bad for me that that, like going through this and what could they do um and so that that was very positive experience Uh, on on the flip side I had quite a negative experience with a with my boyfriend at the time Mm. um who I who I told um I mean he knew I was going to hospital I think I would have told him the same day or maybe the following day um and probably a week after the um, the laparoscopy, I remember going out for for drinks with him and his friends, and and suddenly realizing that and I don't know his friends, but suddenly realizing that everyone else around the table knew about me and mm, and knew that I that there was something, and that he'd just blurted this out. And one of his friends later told me that he blurted it out at a you know an earlier evening um, mm. event. Um, because he was so so distressed and didn't know what how to help and um and how he could support me and I I just remember feeling really like what why did you do that why did you Mm. go and tell people I I don't know like I have control I want to have control of how I tell your story I tell Uh, particularly at this stage where it all felt really uh Mm. uncertain and overwhelming and I didn't really know kind of what so there's a message there's a message to boyfriends and anyone that's with yes. an MRKH don't share their story without their consent. Absolutely. And don't <laughs> go and tell all your friends that, that no one, yeah. that, that this, that your, that your girlfriend doesn't even know. Yeah. Um, and yeah, then you yeah. turn up to, to a bar to, to find that all of these people are looking at you in a, in a kind of way, mm. almost like a, like they're, they're obviously, I know it's like a sorrowful way. I can't even mm. describe it. And it was probably me it was so long ago now I'm probably kind of over (laughs) exaggerating but at the time I just remember feeling it was just it was just that really weird situation where everyone's looking at you in a way that you think what do they know or what's happened Mm. it's just the um, feeling of people thinking something about you which is just uncomfortable I couldn't you can't describe that uncomfort discomfort exactly exactly and so that was that was really the worst experience and we actually we actually did stay together for a little bit longer but then Mm. Uh, it became kind of clear that he he was just he, he couldn't deal with um with with the with the diagnosis at all and wasn't really being very supportive and in the end it was kind of clear that um this had obviously had such an an impact on him he was only two years older than me I think mm. um but he had in his head this whole stuff about family and having a family himself that suddenly this diagnosis even though it was, I was only 17 um and you know we still had you know there were options and there were still other things and we were young and I definitely was trying not to think about that at that age um but suddenly um that that became a kind of big problem and I was like okay well then that's that's it it's uh and I'm very grateful for that yeah <laughs> MRKH definitely. has that power to weed yeah. people out that we don't need in our lives really really does <laughs> really really does even though it doesn't always feel like it at the time it's uh, usually for the best when it happens <laughs> <laughs> um I don't think I've ever heard this much about teenage Charlie we've spoken loads about your story so I just want to delve in into a little bit more of your sort of teenage world and your sort of world of your 20s um so what I know that you were just about to touch on before I interrupted you about your journey with um going into QCCH and getting support from the hospitals so how did you what sort of emotional and psychological support did you receive when you were younger and I guess what kind of um MRKH 
was there any advocates out there that you'd reach out to back in the day where there wasn't much social media and could you just touch on a bit around what support you seeked and where you got it from yes yes very good question um not much in the way of advocacy to Mm. be honest not in the early days so I I knew from being referred to Queen Charlotte so I remember speaking to the specialist there and they said that we that they had a a support group and they ran a support group twice a year um, and would I be interested in in joining their mailing list for that and I said well yes um, Mm. absolutely and uh, at the time they didn't have a psychologist so but it wasn't that long after that they got the their uh, first psychologist or I guess uh, the first in um, in what has been more regular psychology mm. support in in the unit um, and I don't think I went to a first meeting until no sorry I will I'll backtrack slightly because I did meet someone um, a little bit earlier so okay. when I went to do uh, dilation therapy I, I started I decided I wanted to dilate about about nine or ten months after mm-hmm. diagnosis um and <laughs> I remember my mum for very practical reasons thinking this is a very good time to do it it was the Easter holidays um and I was planning to go to university in that September she's like it's very good it gets it out of the way um oh, I had that I had it around my mum saying oh we're going on holiday you can bring them with you I was like oh okay <laughs> like the, the logical sort of yeah fit the dilators yeah. in around your life <laughs> exactly yeah just very pragmatic about the whole mm. thing let's just think of it that way and I remember being in the hospital revising for my a-levels and then dilating you know three times mm. a day or, or whatever with yeah. uh, with the guidance from the um from the nurse we'd love to talk um, more about that so let's keep keep yeah, the dilation okay, sorry okay. yeah <laughs> um but, but yes yeah, so, so when I went to do dilation I didn't know at the time but there but there was another girl who had MRKH who uh, mm. was also doing the treatment therapy at the same time as me and the nurse said do you want to um there's no pressure we were in different rooms but very close to each other Mm. would you like to to meet her and I remember thinking oh god I'm I'm really nervous like what's this person going to be like but you know are they going to almost like kind of silly things like are they going to look like me is it you know is it going to feel like normal um and I met I met this girl um uh called Becky we are still friends now 20 years later um and it was just amazing because suddenly I felt like I had someone who understood the same you know exactly what I was going through Mm. and I didn't really I didn't have that with anyone else of course because you know as as you know you know friends are brilliant family's great if they're supportive Mm. but they don't have that same feeling as someone who's going through that process with you and she was a little bit older got diagnosed a little bit later uh she was in her early 20s when she got diagnosed um But um, but yeah, so we we kind of bonded over dilation therapy and she was the first person I spoke to. And then a couple of years later, I think, was when I probably went to my first support group meeting at the hospital. And mm. and I don't remember going with, with my parents, but I'm not sure I would have gone by myself. So maybe I went with uh, with a friend or something instead. But I I remember it was uh, one where um, they split you up. Yes, yeah. exactly, where they split you up and, and not being prepared for that and just thinking, yeah. oh, oh my goodness. Um, and, and that was kind of really, really strange to meet, to be in a room with then 25 other people that had MRKH. It was really strange to have that that environment mm. um, and then get to hear different people's experiences. And that's when I thought, oh, actually, I'm, 
kind of lucky <laughs> just coming coming back to that mm. point, I'm kind of lucky to have a, a relatively smooth experience to get to this service um and you know so that that's when I started getting um uh yeah getting support from from that way and then it was mm. probably a couple of years later that I, I joined Facebook and then I started joining some of the MRKH groups mm. and that's when I started to get to to know some of the other advocates particularly Ali um and others who are going very public on um, mm. social media and started to to chat to them a little bit and um just you know privately I'll just uh, I, yeah it, and it was just nice to know that there were other people out there in different parts of the world that um also had mrkh um and it was i remember thinking about i i felt like i needed to go and speak to someone professionally about how i was feeling but um i i was really nervous to tell my to tell my parents like they'd be a bit like why do you need this and they were they were they they reacted like a why do you need to go and see a psychologist um mm. and I think it was just because in their like, mind you're fine because you're just no, acting it, fine and you're exactly yeah, yeah, exactly yeah. and it was a I think it's a very much um that era the 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 kind of attitude and personality of yeah. uh, of my parents as well as well you know we just we deal with this stuff in the family and you know you can go and speak to you know your aunt or something mm. um and this is absolutely no disrespect to my, to my parents at all but I think there was just a it was them trying to kind of understand well what what support does she need that we can't provide um mm. which I, I can totally understand thinking about it now but I also couldn't really articulate what that really was mm. um so I I remember calling the hospital or calling hanging up calling hanging up and then finally like getting the guts to, to call them and say I I'd like to speak to this it is guts reaching out is really like absolute hard. guts <laughs> yeah. it, kind of, it seems like it's easy like you just call them just call mm. them like no it's not and in fact it was oh, I hasten to say easier but back back mm. in those earlier days you didn't have to go back through your GP to be rooted to the hospital so I know the very first time I went mm -mm. to see a psychologist I could just call the hospital in London and say I want to see the psychologist but yeah. that was probably also because I was kind of still um so kind of close to dilation that I was still you know obviously a listed patient on their mm. on their system rather than just a um one of the uh, kind of patients on the MRKH uh, newsletter yeah. as it were um so I went to see I went to see her um but I I don't know what I I don't think I really opened up to be honest and I didn't really get personally get very much out of of that the first the first time I went and I think also I was I knew I wanted to to do it and I think it it would have helped me but I was also not very keen to maybe be as like break down some of the walls that really needed to kind of come down a little bit mm -hmm. um to be able to share some of this and, and I think also it, it's so personal depending on the relationship you have with the therapist and I don't think we we gelled in I guess in the way that I thought that she might coerce some of this information out of me mm. without me having to <laughs> come to the table with it um that's initially. so true with um therapists you have to get on as and trust your therapist you can't just like be, give, be given any old therapist and go there you go that person like is they they know about MRKH so they're going to suit you and it's exactly. like, actually no and, and therapy doesn't work all the time and people do say that there's a lot of 
um, pressure that you're going to go to therapy and you're going to feel better. But I felt the same. I had like, I felt amazing and I really got on with the team and I got on with Michelle. I had Michelle in particular um, and I had great sessions, but sometimes you just kind of go away and go, I just need to live a bit more and experience my feelings a bit more before I can delve into them with someone and yeah. find the right person and the right um, psycho, I guess, emotional help that I need. Um, so yes, it's, it's really good. I think it's a really good conversation to say therapy doesn't always just fix you no, <laughs> in the first five months. Absolutely. Yeah. And, mm. and also knowing that you you might need that support at different stages. Mm. So, so the first psychologist yeah. I had was was a um a different one that's not uh, ha- hasn't been in the service. So her name was Jackie, hasn't been in the service for a long time. Mm. And and anyway, she was quite uh, different because every every psychologist has a different approach to things so it's how how you're bonding with that psychologist and how they're then working with you to 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 help with the the tools I guess to um help you with um you know deal with this but I also didn't know how to really speak about MRKH in a way that I really knew um how to how to accept it I, I didn't know really what the problem was other than mm-hmm. I have MRK and I don't know how to deal with it like I couldn't really articulate what the particular challenges were other than this was a big thing and it was all just a bit of a, mm-hmm. a mess which I think is you know not unreasonable that lots of people have that similar um, similar feeling but I think it's then finding that that right relationship with with a, a therapist or whoever you're talking to for support that that gives you that mm. um and it was a, a few years later that I then went back and it was Michelle by that point who was in the in the service and um I think it was I think I think the reason I went back that time uh was because some of my friends started having children and I I was mm. finding that really tough I didn't really know I think I'd got over like the early overwhelmingness mm. of the diagnosis by that point but I was really then struggling how do I um how do I handle the whole pregnancy um yeah. and seeing you know seeing one of my friends I worked with how do I handle then seeing her pregnant all the time and then wanted to spend time with her and we were really good friends we are really good friends like how, how did I how do I process that and I remember mm spending quite a, a lot of time with with Michelle going through that process and and learning different different tools through CBT mm. and other things to to help and and it really and I really did feel like okay now this is what therapy is supposed to feel like it, it's supposed to feel like it's helping and that I'm getting tools that that are going to help um yeah. help me find the way through that process and and learn how to recognize those feelings and then be able to act on them um mm. So I think that's and, and then likewise, I've been back a couple of times since I haven't. Uh, I think the last the last that I did was maybe seven years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's I, I think that's the other thing to, to remind people that it's not you know one set of therapy. One and out. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, like yeah. It, it, it may well be that that is enough to mm-hmm. um, for, for you and that helps you or you later seek support in different ways. But um, it don't don't be afraid um, to think that maybe maybe you, you need to or you might want to consider professional support later and that that's okay there's nothing wrong with needing it's, it's not a sign of failure mm. or weakness to think actually I, I'm recognizing there is a problem here and I need some additional support and that's uh, that could be lifelong <laughs> yeah exactly and, <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, I, and I, I think there's absolutely nothing there is absolutely nothing wrong with that at all and, mm. and I think it's more being able to to recognize that 
feeling and know that there is somewhere or someone or some unit that yeah. you can go um, and speak to and get and get that help. Um, and yes, waiting times can can be long, but it's it's mm. that first step is sometimes the hardest. Actually, going going to make that call, go to mm. that GP just knowing that, that you feel like you're, yeah. exactly, and then yeah. you can you're suddenly okay. You know you're waiting for an appointment, but suddenly you're already feeling like you've taken a step on that process. And I think, like you said, with um, it's such an important thing to raise around therapy isn't just for newly diagnosed and it's not for no. everyone and it can be lifelong and it can be something you go back and forth to because um, we get given four letters, which is MRKH, but actually that that is so complex for every year of your MRKH life. So finding out you've got it is one thing. And then the first year and then the second year. And then, like you said, pregnant friends, dilation. There's so many like complex layers. So speaking of complex layers, what have you learned around your um, identity as a woman or your gender and sexually, emotionally? What And I wanted to just ask really, what does womanhood mean to you? Because I know coming into as a newly diagnosed MRKH that's one thing um mm. and I know you identify as a woman not not everyone does that's why I have asked uh, Charlie in particular what does womanhood uh, mean to her um so yeah just around a bit around your identity as a woman and and how MRKH has had an impact on that mm. yeah it's, it's a really good question I actually uh, wrote a piece just recently on this um for oh, a, amazing. A, a, an editorial that I um I write for and yeah. It's it's a really interesting topic because I I don't actually if I if I'm honest with myself I I didn't feel that it really had an impact on how I felt about being being a woman mm. but what it what it made me feel was just that I was a freak that I was still a woman mm. but I was somehow like a an inferior type of woman because I didn't have a, a uterus and I wasn't experiencing those same rites of passage like periods and you know and, and subsequently you know, pregnancy and all of these things that, that we're kind of taught are going to happen and that are part of our journey of of, of being a woman and how amazing and all of these things that, that suddenly I I didn't ever personally feel that it was challenging having MRKH challenged that thought of womanhood as such mm. it was more that I was just now somehow different and therefore um, my worth was much less than than someone who wasn't in the same situation as me and I think that's mm. that's the part that I found much more insecurity in was was actually how why would someone want to be with me um, when they could be with someone who doesn't have all of this all of this baggage all of this other um, crap for want of a, a better word going going on um, in their lives and is emotional and has you know up and down days um you know and why would they why would why wouldn't they just want to go with someone who was who was you know much easier in that sense and who didn't have all of this and and I mm. and I know that's so I can, I can think now that that's such a kind of negative way to think about it but but then I think we all have we all go through that or so many of us go through that that thought process Definitely. of feeling um unworthy or not worth um love in the same way as someone else and it's, inferior um, almost yeah exactly that, definitely yeah. inferior and almost like a like a freak like somehow you're you're, you're like a woman but different and mm. it's um and that's that was the the part that I for, for years like years and years and years I mean probably half of the of the years since diagnosis 10 plus years it was me being so insecure about why someone would ever want to be with me um, long term 
because of this and mm. and because of the impacts that it have or has on on kind of the future and what what the future may hold um so I think that that was the that was really and that's um, ingrained in us though from society yeah. and what we expect of a woman from sex education and is, exactly. was that kind of how you you think you grow up thinking of a woman as being one thing and we're yes. almost something else and I personally have felt that inferior feeling of going well I do feel like a woman and I know I'm a woman but I just don't feel like the same level of woman and that's yes. sort of I felt exactly. really similar to you yeah exactly the same thing so I guess part of that question was around um, your sort of sexual relationships and, and I know dilating is, is a big part of that for all of us and just skipping back a little bit to <laughs> younger Charlie but how how did you find that decision to dilate and maybe a bit around your sex education and did you feel a pressure to do it or I know that you earlier you said um, it was a decision you made which is always a good thing to hear because a lot of people feel forced into it um, mm. so yeah just anything around your dilation story and journey that you wanted to talk about would be amazing yeah yeah absolutely and I, I remember very vividly that the first uh, meeting with the specialist um, who kind of went through everything and through mm. diagrams and all this kind of thing and I was sitting with my with my mum and and he explained that there was a different therapy uh, available for to, to stretch the vaginal tissue so that you could have a, a normal sex life. Mm. Um, and and I think, you know, back then and maybe the way we would phrase that would be slightly different nowadays. But, you know, and, but I, I wasn't offended in any way by the way he, he described it at the mm. time. And I, I think it was actually he, he made it very clear what the intention was uh, in terms of how it would work and why they do this process and so I felt very at ease I guess was, mm. is my is my point and I remember my mum saying well so so when do we start that and and I remember him saying this is not your decision to my mum uh, which I thought mm. was really interesting when we hear nowadays and we have lots of discussions in the community about consent and um, you know people being feeling forced forced into that and I, I definitely didn't feel that. So I feel very grateful to uh, have had the chance to make my own decision on, on that. And I think it was more than I, I felt for me, like it was a, it was a step forward, a step that I could control um, and something that I was doing for me that was, you know, I couldn't change the other elements. There's nothing I could do about those. I, I, I hated the fact that they were there, but I, I could do something about this step and that it was something that I felt was positive for me. I had a very understanding boyfriend after the, you know, awful boyfriend that, that yeah. diagnosis. Um, and he was extremely patient. I remember talking with him. He wasn't forcing me to, to do it so that we could have sex, but I, I wanted to feel comfortable in, in my body um, and I felt that this was one way I could have some control over that and start to feel maybe some some pleasure and enjoy enjoy this and maybe not forget about MRK but but not see it as such a big hurdle as I had originally thought uh, as a teenager when you're told oh you can't have sex you can't do and it all mm. seemed all very like oh my goodness where do I start yeah. um so I think that's that's really where that decision came from and then it was yeah then there was a kind of more practical side oh do I do my holidays um <laughs> but actually I think it was I think it was a good decision to do it that way I, I felt then that when I went to university I wasn't doing it like three times a day and feeling like I, I was hiding in my room to, to do it I, I could do it but I was I 
was already well practiced if that makes sense I, I I felt like I was comfortable doing doing that in that space because I had already had a few months of doing it myself at home and then just you know trying to you know switch my mind to a very different environment to uh to take some time out to to do it there and and then when I was in a position to be able to you know have you know have sex with my mm. with my boyfriend instead it was much more enjoyable to 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 do that and felt much more comfortable when we could take it slow and uh yeah it was it was a a longish you know it's a, it takes several months to to yeah. do but um i think it was uh, definitely a, a positive um a, a positive step for me in, in my journey to do that that i i felt mm. very ready for i think at the time and probably a, a nice stage for you to be with someone that you were comfortable with sexually, emotionally, because I think that's a, a really huge part of dilation is if you're doing it um, kind of, and I sort of did it, didn't, wasn't in a relationship, and then you're kind of going into sexual relationships that you feel a bit awkward in because they don't know your body yeah. and you haven't told people. And so, yeah, so with something quite traumatic, I guess your silver lining is that you were in that comf- comfortable position with your boyfriend at that time. Yes, um, I guess speaking of your um, boyfriend at that time, I just wondered if you could tell us a bit around the steps you took to facility treatment. I know that you've we've had a little few chats like socially around this, um, and I guess your decision, or if not, well, I guess it was kind of taken away from you, but your decision to um, not have children and how you feel about that now, and I guess a bit around your relationship with the language around being child free childless because I think people um all have different ways of uh, and and feelings around that because some people don't feel free they feel actually like that's been taken away from them so yeah, I'd love to hear more about um yeah yeah that part of your your life and journey with your previous boyfriend and with your current boyfriend now yeah no problem yeah so so I think I think by the time I got to Kind of mid mid twenties, I was feeling at. Uh, I think, I think many of us in the community feel this feel this kind of pressure. Feel like it's something that's that's overhanging a little bit. And I was a, a little bit worried about. Um, or I'm very worried about um, this this ticking clock and what mm. happens if if I get to um, you know 30, 35 and and then then we try to have children. And we've been together for five years by this point my boyfriend and I and you know where at what point do we you know when do we have that conversation and so we, we started having this kind of discussion about whether where we kind of not where we saw the future but I guess what we might like to consider and he he was you know we he was quite a personal um reserved person so he he didn't tend to come to the um support groups with me which I was absolutely fine with it and and I I would never have um forced any anyone to go I know if I'd asked him to come with me he would have but he was very um nervous in those situations and I didn't want to make that more awkward for him because I mm-hmm. actually felt quite comfortable going to to those by that point um but I started to learn like quite a bit about the IVF surrogacy process um after initially thinking I, I think in the earlier years that um that would probably be out of reach for many reasons I thought it was much more uh, well it is a complex process but I, I was fearing it was even more complex and then I think I, I learned that it it actually was um and so I, I started talking to 
uh, to the hospital about it and just uh, with my boyfriend um, his uh, awareness as well obviously and just uh, well if I was to do this what well, how do I go about um, finding some more information and um, what do, what do we do and what would that entail and and so they, they gave me some information to have a look at and suggested I re- referred me to some resources that they had on their website and, and I remember we, we talked about it and probably a it was a good time later, maybe a year or so later. So I was probably 26, 27. Um, we thought, well, maybe we'll we'll see. Like, we'll, let's explore the process because um, it doesn't mean we have to go and find a, a surrogate right now. But if we can go through the fertility process and then we have the embryos and we have flexibility to do something a little bit later or or decide not to um and so I, I think that was kind of where we were thinking of, of it in from the starting point was let's let's kind of go uh, see what we can see what's possible see whether it can be funded because we'd heard a mix of stories yeah. um through that you know the the postcode lottery with IVF and particularly mm-hmm. with surrogacy what what this looked like um so we went through the process to be referred to the fertility clinic and we um I remember we went to that first meeting and they gave us some more information. This is what it will entail. They took some yeah, bloods from both of us. My boyfriend fainted. Oh no. <laughs> um, and, all, and I was like, oh, this is this is starting well. Awesome. Um, and and then it was a case of very good. We'll we'll come back to you with the results of those and those will give us a good idea of uh where you're at with the hormone levels. Mm. Um and then we'll kind of know what we're what our baseline is for the next steps. So I think we had to wait. It was quite a long wait at that time, you know, several months I think before before we came back to get um, to get the results, and uh, and everything looked normal from a hormone. Mm-hmm. Sorry, normal. I hate that word. Um, everything. No, but looked, we know. We know. Yeah, we hate you know it, but I mean. we, we know what it means. Um, <laughs> everything looked within the normal bounds um for um for for the different hormones so things were were looking quite good and then the next step was to uh for my uh boyfriend to do a sample so that they could just test the um the the semen and the mobility and that kind of thing yeah um and then they wanted to do a a transvaginal uh ultrasound uh I've had one of those wasn't keen on it (laughs) they're really uncomfortable and it's just uncomfortable yeah Yeah. (laughs) we should do an um, episode about those <laughs> <laughs> but yeah and that was mm. to identify you know obviously having mrk yeah. our um ovaries aren't in the same place exactly, and they, they yeah. sometimes move and they flow a little bit mm. they're not just uh, kind of fixed so they they yeah. need to to see um uh you know where where they were to see how accessible they were for for uh, you know an ivf an egg mm. retrieval so we went through all of this and we had all of these tests and I remember my boyfriend kind of increasingly getting a little bit um, uh, quieter about the process, I would say, like a bit more reserved feeling. I felt like he was a bit more closing up in terms of um, and I thought that was just because he he didn't really like hospital. It probably was in part because he didn't like hospitals and he just it was all a bit kind of medical and there was a lot to, mm. to go through um and he um I just yeah he went to do his his semen test but I remember it was it almost felt like a fight for that for that to happen I'm like you know why I thought you know this is something that's meant to be for for us Mm. um and and in the end I think it was because he just didn't he was trying to process this at the same time but we weren't really talking about it 
um, and he wasn't talking to anyone about it. I was I was sharing my experiences with with my you know my closest friends and my mum and dad knew knew we were going through the process as well, but I, I wasn't sharing too many details with them. I was trying to um, just because I just felt more comfortable talking to mm. other people and. Um, but I think for him, he, he wasn't really processing it in the, in the same way. And so when we came back with all of these tests and they said, OK, well, everything's looking good. So the next step is you need to go um, We refer you to a counsellor and you have a counselling session just to check how you're both feeling about things and to make sure you understand what the process entails. It can be quite long and um, it had, puts a lot of strain on the relationship. Um, and also in, in parallel, you can have a look at, um, you know, are you, are you self-funding? Are you looking for funding yeah. sources? So we can do that at the same time. Um, and we, we thought, okay, well, we'll, we'll put off the counsellor for a little bit because we didn't have to do that immediately. And that was just something we needed to do before we started. So let's try and see if we could get the funding in place. And we, We'd, we decided between us that we try and do that, um, that, yeah, that, that was really what we wanted. And, and not because we didn't have the money or couldn't afford it or were just mm. trying to get something um, funded, but more because of the, really the principle of, of the process, that, that that funding is available and that in, in different areas it's available for people who, who have just straight IVF, but if they require a surrogate, then it's different the rules are different um, yeah, and I yeah. found that really increasingly frustrating throughout that process and so we got rejected and we appealed and we were rejected and then I, I sought some advice from um from the hospital and they provided some other other suggestions yeah. I wrote to my MP I did all of this this uh, stuff and, and my MP in fact was really positive um and I think did what he could as as an MP but you know not really there wasn't really much he could do at that time and I think things are slowly changing but there's still yeah. there's still a lot of people that that, that miss out on on that um, support and and in the end just I mean this this I, I think this process in the end was probably two years um, and by which point Unfortunately, my boyfriend and I really weren't talking to each other, which which is a little bit of a problem when you're trying to go through a little a bit of a problem, making bit, yeah. an embryo together. Mm. Um, and I'm I'm not trying to be flippant about it. It was a really it was a really, really tough. bad time. Yeah, but it was, of course, it's really. Um, I I just think we we probably weren't as ready as we thought we were, and we didn't we weren't really prepared um there's you can read all you want about things but I didn't know that many people that had been through that process other than the uh the very short oh this is my my journey at some of the support groups or in newsletters mm. where you hear a little bit but you don't hear the full story um so I, I didn't maybe have the full oversight for the length of time and really what the impact really meant mm. and so uh unfortunately I mean it wasn't just because of that but it was one of the one of the reasons that that we we ended up splitting up um mm. because we just weren't really it was more we we weren't communicating so we weren't having those discussions and and I think it you know afterwards we both realized that it was probably not the right time to mm. have done that and and it had impacted our had been one of the causes of impacting our relationship in a in a way that was not completely irrecoverable, but it was really hard to kind of go back to in in a to go back to where we were after having gone through all of that. At least I found it really difficult. 
Um, yeah, I was just going to say, I, I really admire your openness with your previous relationship. And I know that we've, you've spoken about it publicly before, hence I felt comfortable asking, but yeah. I think it, there's such a stigma around breakups and heartbreak and it is fucking heartbreaking to yeah. go through breakups no no matter what and added with the mrkh feelings and the fertility and all of, all that sort of stuff and like you said that wasn't the only reason there's loads of different reasons people break up but i do think it's 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 really admirable and really um just thank you for opening up about previous relationships because i think some of this stuff is stuff people with mrkh want to hear about they need to know about stuff that's been really hard and stuff yeah. that's been a bit of a shitter because actually that that's the stuff that we real people go through with mrkh yeah. and a lot of the time people talk about um relationships and, and all the positives around getting into relationships but sometimes there is some really really hard stuff and yeah no mm. just thank you for opening up about it because it is it is tough <laughs> yeah no and, and no problem I, I think mm. and, and like you say this is what I wish I'd known that, it, that yeah. it's not always easy and that it's gonna I knew it was going to be hard but I don't think mm. I was prepared for how hard and, and also how how unprepared we we ultimately felt in that process because I don't think we we really had I, I think also we were trying to do a lot of it ourselves um not ourselves like in terms of supporting each other whereas mm. I think that there was probably more we could have got from from the wider community that we weren't um we didn't maybe feel comfortable with because uh, that, that community existed at that time but I, I think there was mm. also there's a privacy around going through this process that um I don't think we really felt comfortable in sharing some of of our journey publicly yeah. because we were trying to work it out ourselves as well. Exactly. So it's it's really it's really tricky. Um, and yeah, yeah. And, and I think it's I think we're now both of us um, you know in in much better places than we were. But mm. it, it just you know that that really kind of opened my eyes up to to that experience and really. I I mean it was the year or two after that was was just everything changed um mm. because everything I just turned 30 um I my boyfriend and I had split up we had a house together everything was different and then suddenly it was oh my goodness I'm 30 what is going to happen in my future and and how's this going to work and and back to that kind of insecurity mm. and that self-worth um challenges that, that I that I was having and and it, it's and I remember going back to therapy at that point and and having having a really frank discussion with the with a therapist about I was I was living so much in the future I was so mm -hmm. worried about what the future held that I wasn't really dealing with the the present situation and and like you say the grief the, the heartbreak of yeah. of breaking up but also the grief of finally realizing I think and it sounds really really kind of weird or stupid to say but like the grief of finally realizing that um that I was I was born not being able to have children naturally and that suddenly this had hit me because of this process like yeah. I knew all of this but I think it, it just it it really raised it to the surface going through that process and then suddenly feeling like you're being vindicated because um you can't have access to the same support even though there's nothing you can do about your condition yeah um yeah. so I and I that took some time to to get over but you know a, a couple of years later I met my current boyfriend um, I was gonna say so yeah you've been gone through all of that and it's and it's I'm really really glad that you got the help you needed so how is your um how's everything going now and how is your um I guess continuous thoughts around fertility which I know is continuous how how is that for yeah. you now and, and how are you guys together yeah no it's, in Norway 
great. Yes, and we are both in Norway now. We've been working for all of that time, but it's uh, no, it, it's been it's been a really different experience um, mm-hmm. because I think it, neither of us knew what to what to really expect. He uh, had also come from a longer term relationship, yeah. and um, and and I don't think you know we, we were both at that stage, you know, thirty mid thirties, um, and trying to think well what does the future hold and does it Mm. does it matter if it doesn't hold anything and I think that's what I I kind of learned in those uh, the kind of early part of my 30s that actually maybe it doesn't matter that doesn't matter like I think I had in my head uh, for so long that it it, I had to do this that this was Mm. a a real um, this was a big part of my future was to have children and and I I think that was probably in part because I I truly believe that at some stage Um, but I think I, I came to learn that actually by living by living life in the moment a little bit, I could enjoy and appreciate life for what it is. And great, if if children came along in some form, then that's wonderful. But it, it wasn't it became less of my focus um, and in part, probably that was impacted by the experience. But I think also just having that time to reflect a little bit and, and realize that I'd spent so many years with this thing like hanging over me um that I I could suddenly realize well what do I actually want and, yeah. and I, or what I wanted was to to be happy and enjoy life um and of course you can do that with children but that was that was the initial focus focus mm-hmm. on that and then see what happens with everything else and we had quite a frank conversation relatively early on about and you know he, he I'd known him for a while before we got together and mm. he knew about MRKH and and we discussed about having children. He said, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure if I if I if I want to. And I've never. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in between, if you will. And and I, I said, yeah, I to be honest, I'm, I'm feeling more like that than I was. And then we, we had a discussion about, OK, well, what would happen if we what would we do if we if we did do that? And we decided that you know we would explore adoption or fostering as a, yeah. a as an option to have children but then circumstances changed I got a job in Norway and we were then suddenly living 2,000 miles away from each other um for, for two years um traveling obviously mm-hmm. see each other but we had a different it was a different life setup and a different um situation that then suddenly um, I didn't feel or we both didn't feel that there was a, a place for children in our lives in the same way that maybe we thought there might have been um, and that actually that felt okay um, and it, it's not how I expected or wanted it to be but it was but it certainly we're both very happy with the situation that we're in and we're very mm. um, open we talk to each other which I think is obviously a big part of, of any relationship and it seems very Definitely. easy to stay but it's uh, it really is like just being open with each other about what you really want um, from the other person, and that helps you then, um, you know, work together. You know, you're a team ultimately, mm. um, and and I think that's that's where we are. I, I think it's I, I would say that you know we we are childless to come to your question on childless mm. versus child free. I, language, I prefer yeah. to use childless because it was you know was something mm. that I, I wanted and it is something that I don't have rather than mm. child free which for me um provokes a feeling of um maybe not wanting to have children for, for me that's what it means that, yeah. that I didn't want to have children and I'm free from doing so 
Um, but but I also am not really sure I like either term, but I haven't found one that, that mm, kind yeah, of... Yeah, really... we need some, something new, something a bit more in the middle, because I think exactly. you're right, there's, you're not, you don't feel free, but you don't feel less. So exactly. we need to come up exactly. with something. <laughs> oh, I'll add that to your list, Eleanor. You're very good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks for sharing your journey because I know it's 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 an emotional one and it's one that a lot of us promote not asking people when they're planning on having kids. But the MRKH community tend to talk about a lot of our plans and previous plans and if we're thinking of having them, if we're not. And a lot of I think society expects all women to want to have children, but actually some of us, I know that you had explored that before, some of us don't want to, some of us yeah. haven't been able to, or just circumstantially or whatever the reason. Um, so yeah, I think it's for you, I think your career at the moment, I think that's an amazing part of who you are. And yeah. I wanted to touch on that actually, we'll talk a bit about Connect as well. And I think we could actually do a whole episode on Connect and the stuff yeah. that you're doing, just because we've, um, covered so much and it's just so nice to get to know you personally more and more and more as well so um yeah I guess as adult Charlie we've gone from teenage Charlie and through to adult Charlie you've got the most cool like interesting career and I just wanted to tell our listeners about what you do and how as a woman with MRKH and like you said a woman that without children I think people should be congratulated on so much more than just getting having a kid and getting a house and all the stuff that society expects us to do whereas all of us are so much more interesting than just those things (laughs) so could you tell us a bit about how you've thrived in your career and, and the stuff that you do Yes. Um, yeah. So I, I have a bit of a strange job. Um, it's it's quite difficult to to explain actually. But um, hence why I, I didn't try just then yeah. without, without any script. <laughs> um, so I I analyze satellite imagery. So images taken of the Earth from space. Um, normally for um, say oil and gas customers or mining customers who are looking to get a different perspective of of their area and uh, looking for different features that we can extract from images so this can be like super detailed images or it can be very wide area coverage images and we look for different types of things because there is really um so much different type uh, so many different types of data that that's out there that's you know going round around the around the earth um doesn't your boyfriend do something similar Yes, we actually yeah. sit next to each other at work. Ah, <laughs> taking pictures of the Earth, as you do. Exactly. Yeah, we just, yeah, we'll, we'll task a satellite, we'll chat about it. Yeah. So, um, but no, I, I mean, it's certainly something I never expected to, to be mm. doing. Um, I, I went to university and did geography. I was thinking about becoming a teacher. Um, and then I decided, actually, I don't know if I want to become a teacher when when I was at uni. And I was like, what, what am I going to do? What am I, I going to do with this? Like all of my friends who did geography became teachers. So I, was like, <laughs> I need to I need to find something else that I'm interested in. And we did it. We just did this like really small section on uh, remote sensing, which is this, um, I guess, the the theory behind um, satellite or aerial imagery mm. and, and image analysis. And I thought, oh, actually, this is really cool. Um, but you know, maybe I can do something in this. Maybe there's something I can find out. And and one of my um, lecturers said, "Oh, you could do a master's." And I was like, "Really? Like this is a thing? Okay, mm. cool." Um, so I I decided to to do a master's in this thing. I really didn't know very much about after doing you know six lectures on it or something crazy. Um, but it 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 was an amazing experience because I I also just by chance happened to know someone who lived close to me that I thought did something with satellites, 
which is a kind of crazy thing to think of in the southeast of England, but mm. it, it does exist. There is a company in, in Kent that does uh, analyze satellite data. Um, and so I contacted them and said, do you offer any work experience? Um, I'm going to do this master's. And mm. they came back and said, actually, yes, we do have a project if you're looking for some work for a couple of months we have um it, you can come and come and work for us and um come and learn a little bit more and I was like oh okay cool um and I ended up working there for a year um and I went and did this master's and I went back to that company and I was there for 12 years um so I I was really something I never expected to do at all um yeah. and then the the time came where I thought I need to uh, I want a bit of a change um, I need a new challenge and I knew the people up in in Norway where I am now very well and a job came up here and and they said but the, the caveat is you have to move to the north of north you have to move to the arctic circle and I was like mm. Mm. <laughs> um okay um and I'd only ever been here twice or three times maybe and, and only for like 24 hours so I didn't really know didn't really know the place very well um and and so I thought okay well I'll give it a give it a shot um, yeah. and I got the job and I moved to three and a half years ago now um and and my job is is cool because I'm a I'm a project manager but I I'm technical so I get to look at data I get to chat to customers I get to understand how people are using this and and get to do lecture I do quite a lot of lectures on using satellite data oh amazing um, different groups it's so, so it's cool it's just so like different I remember when you first told me I was like do you take what pictures of space what? and what because I do like a cosmic theme for like the mind of MRKH Instagram no, page I'm like Charlie actually like, like she's in this she's in like she's taking <laughs> pictures of this and I'm just using starry backgrounds <laughs> but no it is really really cool and I, I, I love the fact that everyone with MRKH we all talk about MRKH all the time but there's so much more to us as people than yes. just MRKH and it doesn't it's a big part of all of us but it doesn't define who we are and there is a lot like so many interesting things that we learn about each other as people and friends and stuff that's um yeah no I, I just I love your job it's such a cool thing to talk about um <laughs> And I just, I will move on to Connect if that's all right, because yeah. as everyone knows, Charlie, well, we might know, Charlie is the director of MRKH Connect. Um, and we will, just because we're running out of time a little bit, but we will do an episode um, probably on Connect and some of the later down the line of the things that you're doing, because there's so much to talk about. Yeah. Um, but I'm just so glad that we've covered so many things around your personal life, because I just find it just really nice to get to know people behind all these advocates, behind like the advocacy world and jobs and everything else so um could you tell us a bit about mrkh connect when you took over um and just a bit about your journey with the team um yeah. and just anything you want to touch on really any sort of charity goals or things that you want to talk about would be amazing yeah yeah absolutely yeah so i i didn't found the charity so the charity was was founded oh, yeah. in 2014 yeah. by um by a girl called kelly smith um who has mrk she's a, a british girl but she now lives in in the u.s I said girl, sorry, that's a British woman. Um, <laughs> and um, and she she decided, she was very young when she set up the charity, early 20s. And the reason that she set it up was because she was finding it really difficult to connect um, with, see what we did there, connect, MRKH. Yeah, connect, love uh, that. <laughs> connect with people um, who had MRKH in a forum that wasn't like social media. Mm. Um, and I think at the time also, this is going back obviously you know, six or seven years where, 
um, that there's, you know, we have these amazing Facebook groups and they have a lot of people in them, but trying to find a personal connection can be quite challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so she had actually met someone um, through that group and they've started talking about, well, maybe there's a way that we can provide another space, uh, an alternative space for people to use where they can chat privately and they can find other people in different regions. Hmm. Um, so that that was really the idea behind uh, MLKH Connect was how to connect people with uh, with MLKH from all over the world in a, in a safe space where people could chat and share. There was a forum, all of this, this kind of thing. Hmm. Um, and then and I became involved with it probably 2017 after doing some fundraising for them um after after the whole kind of turmoil of my early 30s um Mm. kind of got really inspired to do something big and something feel really kind of good about myself and that's kind of when I started advocating and started getting uh I'd heard about uh Kelly and and what she was doing she done she did quite a lot of media um Mm. work at that time as well and so I learned a bit more about what they were doing. And I thought, well, this is, I'm really passionate about trying to do something as well. I, I, I don't want other people to feel the, the way that, that I've felt. And also mm-hmm. to, maybe I could provide some advice and, and help um, to, to others going, going through that. So they invited me to join their trustee board and, and help out with some of the um, day-to-day kind of emails and mm. then, you know, website updates, that kind of stuff. But it was a really nice way to kind of get involved and understand a little bit more about the charity. Um, and then in 2019, uh, they, the two founders decided that they wanted to step back a little bit. Um, they, they were in a different place in their life um, and very kind of comfortable with MRKH, but in a different way. And they said, you know, we don't want to see this go to nothing. Um, would you be interested to take, take it on? And I remember telling telling my boyfriend, he said, no. <laughs> and I think it was more, he was worried about, uh, you know, I do quite a lot of different things. Um, I think he yeah. was worried about, uh, you know, the, the impact, the time impact that, that mm. it, it has. And it's a voluntary uh, organization, of course. And I was, but I was also thinking, well, yes, that's true. But on the flip side, that there is, this is something I'm really passionate about. Mm. trying to make some changes in the community and trying to improve things for uh, everyone with MRK and also people who support those of us mm. with MRK. So uh, I became the director in 2019. We brought on a whole new team um, and completely relaunched the charity. So we, we relaunched... You've done a last... bloody amazing job, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we completely relaunched um, in last year, yeah, August mm. last year um after spending probably nearly a year kind of going through like resetting everything up uh with the team and then speaking to the community engaging with the community what did they like about what connect uh had had well stood for and their mission goals and what we had been doing over the previous you know five years by that point Mm -hmm. and what would they like to see and how could we evolve it and make it more uh up to date because i think that that was part of the uh, part of the process when I when I've been talking with Kelly was that you know I think we probably need to do some updates we need to refresh things mm. um, and that's when I think it became clear that they were they were kind of looking to step back a little bit um, yeah. and so there was an opportunity there to do a, a full relaunch and and give it a whole fresh new look and, and mm. a new team so so we have a, a, a nice team as the six of us um, uh, it's and it's quite a mix of of skills I guess and mm. and backgrounds 
but it's, it's myself and uh, another fierce warrior, uh, MLKH warrior, Hasna. Hasna! Um, <laughs> shout out, Hasna! <laughs> <laughs> um, and then my mum is also on the board, so she brings different perspective and, yeah. and runs some of our um, support initiatives that, that we mm. run on the site. Uh, I have uh, one of my friends on the um, on the team as well, and and she has also got experience with with fertility. She mm. she also had IVF herself, um, and so she brings a you know I, I guess a similar perspective on the challenges, but from a different perspective. And mm. and I think it's just a, a nice kind of grounding to some of our discussions. Um, we can be quite kind of open about mm, uh, lots of topics amongst us, uh, and then we have. Uh, Dr. Michelle Lipton from Queen Charlotte, mm. who's the clinical psychologist on the team, who provides invaluable experience on the kind of mental health and well-being elements mm. of what we do and also how we approach those topics. Um, and finally, we have um, actually a friend of mine from my, my professional life, um, uh, a guy called Alistair, um, who runs his own um, website and PR company, more specific to space stuff normally, but ah, he also runs cool. our, um, <laughs> he also runs our uh, website um, mm. and does quite a bit of our kind of graphics and design and, and helps me you know, make sure that I'm not messing anything up on the website, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he's, he also provides a lot of insights as to how we can um, improve our outreach and, mm. and what we can do in, in those elements. So we're, we're, and he's a dad and, you know, he has where that kind of experience, which I think is, it was really important mm. for us to capture in, in some way. Um, but I, yeah, and so it, it's a really nice team and we've been working together now for, you know, I guess nearly nearly two years, I guess 18 mm. months with that kind of core team that we have now. Um, and it's it's really nice to build on those mission goals that we had, um, mm. that, that the MRKH Connect was, was founded on, but then then look to expand those. So, so our mission is still to connect those with MRKH together. It's to raise awareness and provide support to their friends and family, uh, but also improve public awareness. And mm. so that hasn't changed. That's still very much the same now, but it's, it's how we do that in a more, um, I guess, more proactive way. So more collaborations and, and working with other MRKH groups is something we've done basically since we relaunched, you know, working with, mm, uh, with Global MRKH and Beautiful You and, mm. um, you know, doing some of these big initiatives like um, the 5050 event. Um, mm. And so, so really building up the, some momentum around, um, I, I guess, advocacy in general, but also how we can use, use our position as a, as a charity to help inform um, changes uh, mm. and work with research groups and medical professionals to try and look at how we can improve care. Um, so we've been part of some some small studies where you know we're collecting that feedback and how can we then act on that and work mm. with um, with teams in in universities and uh, you know GPs even and uh, you know the specialist units and to improve the information that's shared and so that people don't don't still have this disconnect between um you know a diagnosis and then a referral to mm. a support center and that, that, that there is a kind of clear line of, of where to go for that information or where to go yeah. for that specialist support so yeah we have lots of things we want to do over the the, the next few and years. you've done so much already there's been so <laughs> much going on it's yes yeah, it's, it's really I guess, yeah I guess I just wanted to ask what your the future looks like for connect and and we've seen so many amazing initiatives and things going on and I know we've worked together on things and it's been really mm. fun doing um 
and emotional as well doing virtual events and speaking to different people and I know that you've got the connect with friends which is a regular online meetup which has just been amazing to when I've had when I have been able to come to them just to sit and chat to people all it's not just the UK there's people from all over Europe and yeah. America and like just everywhere so it has been really exciting just to see the community grow um so yeah what what are the what does the future look like for connect and what what sort of projects can we see upcoming yeah, um, lots really. We too, too much, I guess, to mention here. Um, too much but, now, yeah. But we uh, <laughs> definitely some some live events next year. So mm. you know, we we've we've had some really nice um, opportunities to raise money over the last year. You know, despite mm. lockdown, we've we've had the opportunity to run some virtual events and and generate some some income. And now we want to put that back into the community. So mm-hmm. funding local initiatives, supporting some of our um other friends within the community mm. who perhaps need some sponsorship for some things that they want to do that's mm. really part of our remit is if we can help MRKH um people connect with others then that's mm. something that, that we're happy to invest some some time and effort and perhaps money into depending on, on on how that fits within our goals and and also doing some some live events so we're, we're planning to do a, a live connect with friends events next year so actually bringing mm. bringing our kind of concept of connecting and Mm. bringing that people together in a zoom environment but having something that's maybe more like a day or a weekend uh, event uh, sometime in the spring summer next year is Mm. is what we're thinking and and also recreating some of our uh, other events so uh, we did a virtual 5050 challenge so doing Mm. some of those events as as in persons and we have some some outreach planned um with with the the younger MRKH community as well and some some work we're, we're building there um so I think there's there's really quite a lot of things that are coming up and and how we can I think also what's important for us is is working with other members of the community and mm. continuing to build those relationships with 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 our peers that help mm. us all collectively uh improve awareness for our cohorts I guess in terms yeah. of regions but, but also in terms of um, building those specific resources that are relevant to our communities um, and ensuring that they are mm. you know, making them relatable, um, making sure that there is access to materials in different in different mm. languages is something we've talked about quite a lot with within the community and how to improve that and, and providing some some support to translations and those kind of things. So I think there's there's lots coming that um yeah I'm excited to talk about more uh, when we have yeah more <laughs> I think with, with MRKH the opportunities of advocacy and projects are just endless because like so you said much. when I was younger there was maybe one post one person one charity and now I know that you're our kind of sole UK charity um but not sole kind of project because there's loads of different advocates doing different things yeah. and I just love the the way that you work with everyone to try and to try and bring advocacy like I know that we've got loads of different organizations global beautiful you and mind and and all and all of the um advocates on Instagram and elsewhere um and it's just I like the connection of all of them and that is MRKH Connect it's kind of bringing it all together and going right what can we all do and I know that that's part of global as well so it's it's really exciting and I think that's the main thing it is just exciting because the next person being diagnosed is going to have a really shit day that day but to know that there's so many of us here for them is like such a lovely um message to have to those to those newly diagnosed people um on that point and and again, would love to talk more about Connect. So we can definitely touch on more. We can try and cover some maybe future projects and future episodes as well. Um, I just wanted to ask 
everyone that comes on the podcast what your message to the next person being diagnosed with MRKH is um, and also your message to the next advocate of MRKH so there's kind of two questions there because I think there's there two important questions because there's many young advocates and even like we're all we're all advocates and we still need help and support so I'll I'll start I'll start with the message to newly diagnosed first Mm. um and I think for for that I would say that the best advice is really to be patient uh patient with yourself and patient with with the process and try not to worry about the future and what other people are doing and how they're progressing in their journey you know this is this is your journey um, and it's so easy to be completely overwhelmed by everything, uh, but also knowing that that your journey is is only is yours, and that it it can't be compared to others, although it's obviously relatable to others, and and you will find a sense of comfort in being able to speak to other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think patience can really help us uh, process. It gives us time to ask questions, to reach out, to build our own knowledge of what MRKH means for for us. Um, and how we can work to live with it without it feeling like it's something that defines you. Um, so I think that's, yeah, that would be my message to, to someone newly, newly diagnosed. And, and I would say to, to young advocates, it's, um, again, some of those things are relatable, you know, be patient mm-hmm. as well. And, 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 and also try not to um, think about why you want to advocate. What what is the purpose? Um, is it for your own um, uh, comfort? Is it because you um, see other people are doing it and feel that you should be doing the same as them because you're at the same age or same stage of your journey? Um, so again, it's it's not comparing yourselves to others and that every journey is different and and also being very conscious that um, it can be a lot as a young advocate to to be so open and so public. Um, and to be quite honest with you, I think you are all unbelievably brave warriors at that age to be so open about how, how, you're, how you feel about your body and talking about these topics that you know, LMA and I have definitely found not so easy to talk about at a similar age. So you know, I, I cannot express how amazing I think you all are for that, but, but also remember to, to take the time don't use it as a way to process your grief. Use it as a way to um, help you help others going through that process and, and make sure that you feel uh, comfortable with that disclosure, knowing that that is something that is going to be online for a while. Yes, of course, things can be taken down, but it's, it's quite a public process and that actually advocacy doesn't always have to be public. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of advocacy. So true. Do by talking to, um, you know, by, by attending peer support, by, by chatting privately with someone that's still advocacy, you're still, um, you know, finding your place in, in this process. So again, be patient, don't, um, don't overstretch, but also don't, um, don't feel like because you're an advocate, you can't then ask for help because that's, mm. you know, we all have bad days, even now, even 20 years later, where we just think, yep, can't do it today. And that's fine. That's just the way things go. So be, be patient, take time um, and just make sure you know uh, why you're advocating. Mm. Thank you so much, Charlie. That's such an important message. And I love the patience because it's 
just self-patience and just giving yeah. yourself a break and giving yourself time and, and I think when I first started sharing my story I would have loved to have heard your message then so I think this is going to be really <laughs> helpful for the next person being diagnosed and for the next advocates because there's a lot of advocates coming out the amazing woodwork that is MRKH and oh I think goodness, yes. all of us need support and all of us need to rally around each other and that's exactly what we do. So anyway I think we're going to wrap it up but thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for talking to me and sharing your story it's been absolutely amazing did you want to add anything else at all at the end no I just to say thank you so much for the opportunity um yeah take the time that you need and know that there's Mm. always support out there um uh, however however uh, or whatever support looks like for you Thank you so much, Charlie. And just for our listeners, there's going to be some links to Donate to Connect and the work that they do um, on the description of the podcast. Take care, Charlie. I'll speak to you soon. Take care, LMA. Thank you again to Charlie, my friend and community leader. It's been an absolute pleasure having Charlie on the podcast, talking all things her journey with MRKH, as well as her amazing advocacy journey, um, which is going to continue because there's so much coming up for MRKH Connect. And I know Charlie's putting so much work into it. So if you can support by donating or sharing the work that MRKH Connect do, please do. The links are in the description of this podcast and the community would really appreciate your support. Thank you so much for listening to the Mind Over MRKH podcast. We will have regular new episodes, so please follow and subscribe. If you want to come for a chat, get in touch. And to everyone with MRKH, you are not alone.